0: So, hi and welcome to Just a GP. This episode, we're having the joy of interviewing Pallavi Prathavadi. Now, Pallavi is still in the training program for being just a GP, but she's not just a GP. Funnily enough, otherwise we wouldn't be interviewing her, but then nobody is just a GP, are they? But Pallavi is a really good example of, for me, the excitement of, all of you young guys entering into general practice. So at this point I might just let Palavi say hi. Hello, thank you for having me on this podcast. Hi Palavi. Hello, I've been looking forward to it for weeks. A pleasure. So we're joined with Palavi with Beck Hoffman and we are so looking forward to this interview but and we'll explain more about, well Palavi will explain more about how exceptional she is as we go. But I'm going to, Push it over to Beck. What's been a highlight of your week this week?
1: So I had a good think about this this morning because I was thinking that there's nothing really exceptional that I've done this week. But I think that's actually the highlight is that I had a really good friend from Melbourne come up and stay over at my house for a couple of nights midweek. And I would never normally do that on a school night. Normally I'm incredibly boring and mundane but it was so nice to be social and touch base and catch up with someone who's non-medical and just fun and it really was a highlight of my week it was great to be a bit social
0: what does it they say the, the mental well-being of us is to actually enjoy our friends so Pallavi what about you
2: I know you told me to think
0: of a highlight, but I actually have two if you'll let me do both of them. I'll go for it.
2: <laughs> I have a silly highlight and a good highlight. So silly highlight first is that I have been trying to implement pink Fridays at my clinic for no reason at all, but it just means that we all wear pink on Fridays.
1: Mm.
2: And I have been I took a day off from the clinic today so I could get other things done and do this podcast. And I got text from people at the clinic of them still wearing pink.
0: <laughs> so they were doing it despite you not being there. Excellent.
2: Yes, it brought me joy.
0: Yeah, that's called true implementation, palavi, true implementation.
2: Yeah, yeah, big changes. But my actual highlight is a clinical highlight. About a 70-something-year-old woman I've been seeing for a while with really difficult to control type two diabetes. And over the last maybe two, three years, her HbA1c has just kind of steadily been going up and up. And she's not been that great, that compliant with all the stuff that she needs to do. And about two months ago, we had a massive chat about, you know, maybe putting her on insulin, making some big changes, really trying to focus on diet. And yesterday, she came in to see me for her latest HbA1c, which had dropped from 10.5 to 6.9. It was massive, massive just from medication, sticking to diet, taking it seriously and exercising. And we were both so excited in this consult.
0: You know, I think you described, and that's one of the joys, isn't it, of this whole continuity of care is is being able to sh- share the wins that our patients can achieve when they sort of take on board what actually needs to happen and, then, and it actually happens. Cool. Well, I'll share my highlight, which I'll actually... M- do a clinical one too. So I've got a patient who I've been looking, looked after for quite some time and she had breast cancer and had been given a really good prognosis with her breast cancer, but actually um, presented to me with some uh, just non-specific hip pain, which actually sounded just like, you know, a, a tendonitis type thing but it just persisted. So we did a scan and unfortunately came back with the really, really bad news of it being a bony mit. But for me, what's been the highlight is the amazing technology that is out there now. So she's actually had a sort of a three quarters of her pelvis has been replaced by a 3D imprint, you know, titanium pelvis to so actually all the bony mets have been taken out and she's got this titanium replacement which could never ever have happened before and it's made exactly the same as her own previous pelvis and she was in hospital for less than two weeks she's out she's mobile she knows her prognosis isn't great but she's got no pain she's pretty much got very few side effects from the surgery and it's meant that she's been able to be with her mum who is suffering from dementia and helping with her care which obviously otherwise she wouldn't have and it's just just being able to share with her that amazing thing and she came in this week and again was just sort of I don't know just sharing with me as being someone who's been with her on that journey which is again a similar highlight.
1: Isn't medicine awesome? That's just so cool.
0: Yeah, some of these new things are just, yeah, blow me away, really. It's all because of research. So, Pallavi, over to you. Uh, It's all because of research. That's right. And being brave and innovative and thinking outside the normal, isn't it? Yes. So, do you want to – I'd love it if you could just maybe tell us a little bit about you and you're doing a PhD. So – I'd love you to sort of share a little bit about how that's happened and why.
2: I would love to. So um, I'm now a first-year fellow, but when I was in the last year of my general practice training, I did the RACGP academic post. And when I went to interview with Professor Danielle Matzer at the Department of General Practice at Monash, we were talking about how I had done research before I had done a master's in pain management and I knew what my research interest was. So she suggested, why don't you just enroll in a PhD before you start the academic post and do that academic post as the first year of your PhD, which was a great idea and worked really well for me because it meant that All of my research that first year was actually funded through the RACGP. I had a research budget, I had salary support, and all of the work that I was doing anyway for the academic post now is getting credited for my doctorate.
1: Very cool. Because when you initially said that, I was like, oh my goodness, you started a PhD while you were training. That's insane. But when you actually explained why, that actually makes good sense.
2: Yeah, it was a really great suggestion that I'm really grateful um, that Prof Matzer put that to me. I mean, there was definitely difficulties when I finished my training last year and then I I needed to continue the PhD and I then had to try and find my own research funding, apply for scholarships, which really happens at the same time as also trying to find a consultant job and not having all of the financial securities of a GP training program. So there's definitely a stress to it. But I would definitely advise it for anyone who, who is sure they want to do a PhD, wants to continue in the same research subject and knows that the supervisors of their academic post will be supportive because it, it just takes a year out of that
0: whole process. And a year is a lot of time in the academic world. But from where I'm sitting, it's not just that. It's actually having that very much, that rich support in getting you in that first year, which is often very, really lacking for GPs who just have to start out on their own. They don't have access to any of those things that you get through the academic post.
2: Yeah, it would be very difficult. The academic post has been set up in a really great way. And I I think I had the added benefit of Dr. Chris Barton, who is my secondary supervisor and who also runs the RACGP academic program. So he was very on the ball with milestones, things that had to be done. Was it going to be manageable to do the PhD and the academic post concurrently? And I know that not everyone has that luxury of having him as a supervisor, but this has been done before. So for anyone who is listening and is in the program and thinking of this pathway, you know, we've got a precedence now, so it means that we can all help and make this happen for more registrars who are interested in doing the PhD during their training.
0: Yeah. And so maybe then too, you could tell us a little bit about your actual project and your passion and why you've gone down this particular path as well.
2: Uh, definitely. So the, the research I'm doing is looking at how GPs prescribe opioids and why, and then how can we try and make GP opioid prescribing more evidence-based. And it's a very complicated area, but I think a very important one. So to kind of give you an idea of how big this problem is, we as a country, Australia, probably over-prescribing opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. And we have increasing evidence that most opioids are not that helpful for chronic non-cancer pain and carry serious risks of harm, addiction, dependence, mortality... And 50% of the country's opioids are prescribed by GPs and 50% of that is for chronic non-cancer pain. So it means that there's a huge amount that probably isn't evidence-based and that we could really try and think about safer alternatives to manage chronic pain rather than opioids. Or if opioids are needed, making sure that the GP's Are using good risk reduction strategies, checking safe doses, referring to pain specialists when they need to, putting
0: in all of the safety that long term opioid use needs. So, I mean, I think it's an absolutely timely and great project. I mean, I'll, I'll be a devil's advocate here for you. I mean, as a GP, I have A, my patients telling me that the opioid is the only alternative for their not their cancer chronic pain and you know what what options do I then have as a GP have when you're faced with quite a difficult pain management scenario in that case when when you're sort of saying, well we can't do that. And then my point number two is that I send them to the pain clinic and the pain clinic just I'll have decreased them and the pain clinic increases them back and adds in something else as well.
2: Yes, I a thousand percent agree with you on both points. Anecdotally, because I'm also a GP and I have the same struggle in my clinic, Uh, you know, the the young woman who comes in with uh, really bad period pain or migraines or tension headaches and wants the codeine script and is, you know, got escalating use. But I also know that she's got anxiety and depression and probably an unstable relationship and at risk of domestic violence. And I might not be able to help with all of those other bigger problems straight away. But, you know, what I could do is give that coding script today. So I I understand how GPs feel. And I I totally understand how you feel when you're talking about the same situation. This is not going to fix overnight. I think that most GPs are not deliberately overprescribing just to do it. I think they genuinely want to help the patient and sometimes an opioid script is the only way they can and maybe some small strategies we could do to improve this is try and get more public education about you know what actually is going to help chronic pain could we actually get your mood up could we try and get you walking a bit we know that these things will probably help your pain more than you know a non-indicated opioid then what we hear and i'm sure both of you will agree with me is when we say hey your low back pain, what you really need is physio. And they say, well, I've maxed out my four or five physio appointments that I get a year through the GP management plan, and I'm working one day a week as a single mum. I sure can't afford a private physio. I mean, th- these things are expensive. I, you know, if we had cheaper physio, cheaper hydrotherapy, cheaper acupuncture, we could push that really strongly. But not everyone can afford really important basic allied health. And Perhaps a tramadol script is cheaper on the PBS and actually something that the patient could afford.
0: See, I'd sort of challenge that. I mean, I have no... I mean, when I say challenge that, I, I'm, I'm with you 100% of the way. But I mean, one of the things for me is that I don't want to give the scripts and I don't like the codeine. I find more difficult really is the patients who, who really do have severe osteoarthritis who tell me that they just can't sleep at night time unless they have a small dose of endone, for instance. And, you know, and their experience is, is that they get treated very badly by the system about the fact that they're doing that and taking that. And, I, I mean, I've never had that sort of pain. I don't know whether they're right that there's nothing else and it's very hard to sleep. But that's, to me, that's when you've really got your difficulty Whereas I've got no problem with managing people and getting them to move more and having some process about accessing physio and, and particularly if you're younger, because I think that's a great opportunity for us educating differently. There's a cohort of patients and cohort of GPs, because I'm one of them, where we were taught you used opiates that if we were actually being mean to these patients with particularly severe osteoarthritis if we didn't give them opiates and that we needed to make sure that they were not in pain because if they were in pain we were imprinting chronic pain for them so it's so you got a back, got a whole about turn of people who were you know really heavily marketed for about There was about six or seven years where I, you know, constantly went to pain management sessions where that's what we were told. Whereas now we're being told you're a very naughty girl, you shouldn't ever have even started those opiates on that patient.
2: Yeah. So none of what you're saying is new to me. In my first two PhD studies, I actually interviewed 20 GPs and 20 GP registrars asking them about these same things. And it was the same You know, a lot of the older GPs were saying the same things that, you know, I think we're overreacting to the situation. I think there's a role for opioids. I do lots of aged care and I know that low-dose Tarjan or a buprenorphine patch can really improve quality of life in an elderly patient, which is what you're talking about. And then a lot of the younger
0: GPs and the GP registrars. Just saying that's one of the hardest things when you got that as your experience. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's,
2: uh, I mean, we're hearing this from GPs, I think, probably like 40, 50, 60, coming up into retirement. There definitely was a phase where the drug companies were really saying, you know, these are safe medications. If you're not escalating uses, it's okay. Even in our opioid prescribing guidelines, like the RACGP prescribing drugs of dependence document. It does say consider doing a trial of opioids and seeing whether low dose would be beneficial in conditions like, the you know, the severe osteoarthritis. And I think as GPs, you know, what, what we're really trying and treat is quality of life. And, you know, when you have the patients who are perhaps aged care patients or elderly and are not fit for a knee replacement or a hip replacement, but their pain just, you know, stops them from going out to the shop's and from seeing family or you know, being active, they can get a little bit better with I don't, endone tarjan, then shouldn't we be treating that? Isn't that our job? I think this is a very complex issue, and there's good
0: arguments on either side. And hence the joy of research because you can actually sort of come up with some of these things.
1: Which was my exact next question. So you've done the research having a look at registrars and fellowed GPs across their GP life about what their prescribing habits and choices are. So what do you do do next? What avenue do you next go down as part of your PhD?
2: So those were both interview studies. So we we really wanted to get really in-depth narratives about the GP's experiences, why they prescribed, and if you know they felt pressured to prescribe and what might change their prescribing to make it safer. So I followed that up with a nationwide survey of GPs. So that's been sent out to 4,000 GPs across the country. And I'm just in the middle of doing the statistical analysis for that. But it's very similar. Now we want to know you know, the narratives we got from the 40 Victorian GPs I interviewed, is it pretty similar right across the country?
0: So if we go back to then the findings, was there anything that you had that was unexpected from those interviews?
2: So in terms of the actual science and findings, they were very consistent with what, what narratives we had got in our interviews. But what I was taken aback was a lot of the emotion that came back in these surveys, We had free text responses right at the end of the two-page survey with things like, do you have any other comments? And there were quite a lot of really emotional, I feel targeted by the government's interference in my prescribing. I feel like I'm not being taken seriously as a GP. This case study was oversimplified and real life is complicated there was just so many comments that really make me aware how difficult an issue this is, how sensitive it is to patients and GPs.
0: So what do you do with that next? You know, what what sort of exploring do you think you can do to try and pull out what the sort of the enablers and barriers are? To, well, there's obviously barriers, what sort of things that you can do?
2: Ideally, what we want to do at the end of this PhD is design an intervention for GPs to help them prescribe safer and more guideline concordant pain management. But to do that, I think we need to really work hand in hand with GPs. And it really helps that I'm right in that intersection of clinical general practice and academic general practice. Because it's not going to go down well if we design an intervention, try and trial it and say, here, uh, this is how we're going to improve your opioid prescribing. So what we're trying to work on is looking at different types of interventions that have helped primary care opioid prescribing around the world. How do GPs respond to guidelines and how can we get more guideline awareness in clinical practice? Is things like SafeScript and uh, mandatory real-time prescription monitoring going to work for GPs? Is it going to change how they prescribe? And I think we just have to work really closely with our end-user GPs to try and design something that will help patients but also GPs.
1: I actually have two questions. Why research? You seem so passionate about research and how that drives change and that the academic program was a good one for you but what was it that when this is a career that I want and I want to juggle both academic and clinical general practice and I'm going to do it so early in my general practice career what was it that you decided this was something you were really passionate about?
2: Okay (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) I think I just assumed that I would be happy here but I, I think I just I like making change on bigger Mm -hmm. scales and I I like policy I like influencing policy and I wasn't sure that my you know day-to-day clinical practice would allow that I didn't think that seeing 30 patients a day would satisfy me and and what I could give back to this world or leave behind or make this field safer and the way I thought I could do it was working in research and trying to change physician behavior or prescribing or health policy Um, and the route to that to me was working in research and I suspect there's a lot of people in medicine who feel the same way because you know we have interests in public health we treat individual patients but we also have wider roles and we care about bigger populations so I wonder if that's the reason why a lot of people end up going into things like public health policy research
1: yeah absolutely and mine is actually quite a similar answer which um, I think is why I asked it, because I love all of those aspects about research and general practice. And you get quite a warm, fuzzy feeling doing the research and finding out the answers that will not only affect that yourself and the person sitting opposite you in your consult room, but also potentially affect a bigger population outside of your suburban city. And, yeah, it's really cool and I'm going to jump straight into my second question which is that I want to know all about Antarctica.
2: Um okay so I at the end of 2019 I went on a voyage to Antarctica which was the world's largest women only voyage and we had 99 women leaders in science, technology, engineering, maths, and medicine from around the world. And we uh, left from Ushuaia, which is the southernmost point of the world, but actually in Argentina, Um, and then crossed the Drake Passage and made it to Antarctic land, visited lots of science bases, the Argentinian base, the Chinese base, which was very rare and lucky, and the British base, Port Lockroy, and tried to help with some citizen science and really discuss the major science problems that are facing this world right now, how we can improve science policy and, you know, make the world better by getting more women into these really senior science positions around the world.
0: So, again, this is, you've sort of left us on this tantalising sort of thinking process. How How did you get to be one of these 99 women. There's
2: actually a, another GP who um, mentioned this program to me, and I I have this habit of I just apply for everything because I never know what will turn out to be a incredible opportunity, and you know what was something that maybe wasn't entirely beneficial for me. But every opportunity is an opportunity, so I apply to everything, and then I I got selected, and I I guess it's because I I have some roles within medicine um, where I have a voice and. I have a role as a leader, which means that I can help, one, in terms of woman leadership and, two, potentially influencing policy within medicine. So
0: do you want to tell us a little bit more about that?
2: I guess my main role is that at the AMA Victoria, I chair the Women in Medicine group. The role is just really wonderful and we get to collaborate and work with a lot of incredible women In medicine from all fields. And we run events and we develop really useful information sessions and booklets and have a big social media presence about how we can get gender equity in medicine, what it's like balancing parenting and medicine, and what it's like to take on leadership roles within medicine without having to necessarily step into that, you know, that typical characteristic, what we think is a, a leader in the very masculine dominant style women leadership is very different and what we value and how we bring about change and we lead teams is very different i guess the thinking is that the world probably needs more of that to get things done to make important changes really about making things like climate change and trying to leave a legacy for generations that still have to come Maybe if we get more women leadership making those kind of policy decisions, it will change outcomes.
0: I couldn't agree more, but I would also like to add in that I think having women who have that more general, broader thinking schema is also really, really useful. Is one of the big things I find really fascinating is how differently we do think about things when you're looking at the whole bigger picture and not just the extraordinary fine detail of things.
2: Yes, I, I, I definitely agree with that.
0: So back to Antarctica, what would be then the, the sort of the key prime learning that you came away with that, that might influence you as you're moving forward?
2: We had some really interesting conversations about diversity and inclusiveness when it comes to women leadership. And this is something that I'm pretty passionate about. But I took some really key messages away from that, which was great. And the way it was explained to me that I really value now is diversity is getting everyone to the table, but inclusiveness is making sure everyone at the table has a voice. And we're definitely trying to improve diversity in terms of gender representation, race and ethnicity, called backgrounds and Differently abled people, LGBTIQ, but that doesn't necessarily mean that just because they're at the table, they're being listened to and given a voice and being taken seriously. So I think every time we try and get diversity, we still need to make sure it's not tokenism diversity and that we're actually making sure these underrepresented, underrepresented, underheard voices are really at the forefront.
1: Did you come away with any strategies of how to do that? Because that sounds like quite a ambitious goal.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is definitely not in the short term. This is, you know, if we want to make big changes in science policy or, you know, in leadership in area, that's what we need to aim for. But we're not going to get there today. Yeah, there were definitely some strategies. I just don't know if all of them are going to be effective. A lot of it was about, you know, if you're at a table or a, a table full of decision makers, if you're at a conference, if you're on a board, just look around and see if every person is going to be representing something bigger than just the board. And if there is a voice that's not being heard, to be an advocate for somebody else. And, you know, if, if you're from a minority representation, and I certainly am, to make sure that you're the voice that's heard, because you're standing up then for all of the other people who will come after you.
0: Yeah. So. I mean, I agree entirely and it's certainly one of the big challenges, I think, as a leader that we actually enabling the voices is just, again, the next step to not just have them being heard around the table, but that the heard means enabling some of those changes to happen. And for me, where I think that I see one of the biggest issues is how do you actually then get that next state of change and things to really happen the way our sort of current government works is there's lots of little things that might happen and little wins but none of them are really attached to a bigger goal of where we're actually wanting to go to and that's certainly one of the things I would love us to be able to be able to do with everybody's voices being heard in that
2: yeah, yeah, definitely. And I've thought about this before. I have a friend who is, you know, just incredibly influential in the climate change policy scene. And I've been really trying to get her to run in local politics or state politics and try and actually hold office. But it's really hard to get these voices and, you know, the less representative people that we're talking about into levels of government where they can probably affect change. I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if I'm being pessimistic about this, but I I don't know whether we've reached that point of the world just
0: yet. As I said, I think it's to do with the system of representation and how we empower voices in government. And so there's a lot more change that actually has to happen in terms of how we do that. And having a more, you know, it's, it's the whole bipartisan approach rather than party-driven means that you, you just don't – it is is very difficult, I think, to actually really get change. But that's getting too serious again. <laughs> what I'd really also like to know is a little bit more about your practice stuff that, you know, got you, in terms of a GP registrar, winning the award of the GP Registrar of the Year Award. So tell us a little bit more about that. That was
2: – A really special thing to win. And I was just so moved. I think there are a lot of really incredible GP registrars out there. And it's, I think it's just that, you know, in that year, maybe my application went through. But there are so many friends I have in GP training who are doing incredible stuff. And if you had more awards to give out, like you'd just be so impressed with the number of very cool GP registrars out there making massive changes.
0: I'm not in the least bit doubting of that, but I want to hear more about you. And I know we're not very good generally at selling ourselves, but you just have an opportunity on this podcast to just do a little bit of selling. Sure.
2: <laughs> well, I, I like to practice evidence-based medicine and I try really hard to make the decisions that you know other GPs would think were reasonable and safe and that patients would respect and that I go home at the end of the day feeling like I've been a safe GP. And sometimes to do that, we also need to change clinic culture and work with our colleagues to make sure we're all trying to practice in a pretty similar way. So I've definitely had some involvement in trying to write clinic policies about improving prescribing. In my current clinic, we've been working on trying to improve delivery of contraception care care. And we've been kind of planning a contraception clinic, which ideally would be a half day when we provide a lot of important services and we just alternate, we just take turns running that contraception clinic once a week. And we're just trying to make our practice safe and that patients are happy with it and making sure that we provide really good holistic care, particularly in an area where it can be really hard for us to get access to to medical terminations or, you know, really basic stuff like Mirena insertion, it can be tricky in the the neighborhood that I work in. So I guess that holistically, perhaps the award uh, was given because I try to do something bigger than um, just coming into work, seeing patients and going home, I want to leave something behind. And I want to make the clinic better and I want us all to practice safer medicine so I, I take on extra involvements and roles in the hope that I can do that.
0: So tell me what's one of your most precious footprints that you have left behind in, in this clinic?
2: So I'm, I'm back at the clinic that I was at in my first year. I mean I, I just love this clinic. It's got great doctors, culture is awesome, the nurses are just so enthusiastic and friendly And there's not a lot that I've really needed to do in this clinic other than working with all of the other GPs on our regular, you know, we have regular doctor's meetings, which I'm sure both of you also have, making sure that really what our decisions are evidence-based we've got a real benefit that we share a lot of patients so we can you know it means that we're accountable to each other when we see notes from another GP and you know we can very easily talk to each other and say can you explain this decision or I just needed a bit of help what do you think I should do here the patient will come back and see you next week and I've tried really hard to be part of keeping that culture going but also I was the first registrar the clinic had. Since since I, I came, went and came back, we've had, I think, four other registrars. And I've taken it really seriously to try and integrate the new registrars into the clinic. I also brought in medical students to the clinic, which was very exciting for everyone, particularly for the registrars around. It's always nicer for them to also teach, not just be taught. And I'm hoping that Even after I go, the clinic will keep the medical students and, you know, become a really wonderful multi-level, multi-career stage medical clinic.
0: That sounds like a wonderful footprint. Well done. And I think that that's probably a great moment to get everybody to bring in your clinical tip for the week.
1: I'm happy to take us away with our tip for the week or our resource for the week. And I do have to apologise, mine is New South Wales based. So the New South Wales RECGP have decided to start a Facebook page as a way to disseminate information a little bit easier for those people who use Facebook. And I was hoping that sometimes Facebook is a little bit clunky and hard to find things on there if you don't know that they exist. But I was just hoping to let any GPs in New South Wales who use Facebook know that there is a new group for GPs run through the New South Wales faculty. And if they wanted to join, they probably are best to either search for it and it should come up or to email the faculty and we'll put you in contact with how to join up.
2: Mine is, again, about pain. (laughs) And it's the Pain Australia website. That's painaustralia.org.au. It just has incredible fact sheets. And I only found this website a few weeks ago, but there's great patient fact sheets available about lots of different areas of pain management and treatments but there's also a pain toolkit that's available in several different languages. It might help GPs explain complex pain concepts to people who are non-English speaking.
0: Thank you. That sounds really helpful. And if we will get that posted um, on the Just a GP site so people know where to go. And mine is a little bit sideways. This, um, in the last couple of weeks, the RACGP... Launched its updated smoking cessation guidelines, which, like anything, has always get got taken up a little bit sideways when the Sydney Morning Herald said that the new guidelines for smoking cessation from the college actually recommended that we encourage vaping which, can I tell you, we don't encourage vaping, but the guidelines have said that if there is no other option that you can have a conversation because there is no evidence at this point in time that they do harm, even though if you go looking at stuff, the problem is is there's no evidence about them at all. So that's why you probably shouldn't go down that path at all, but that's what got taken up by the Sydney Morning Herald saying, and of course that meant we were saying, do it but we weren't we were just saying there isn't yet any enough evidence either way so it's about patient-centered care and if the patient says they there is no other option then it's about encouraging them to stop smoking because that is obviously the most important thing they can do but if you're interested in reading more about it you just need to go to the college website and download the handbook because it does actually have some really good evidence-based advice about how we can encourage smoking cessation. And given that it's probably one of the most powerful things that we can still do for our patients who smoke to get them to stop smoking, I think it's worth a look.
1: Sounds great. I didn't know that it happened. I usually try to keep on track of guidelines and I didn't know that it updated. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. And it needed updating because the last one was 2014 and a lot has happened since then. So it's really good and it does have all of the latest evidence. And it is very interesting, even if you just want to read about the vaping, can I tell you, just so that you've got a little bit more information to give patients when they do come in and ask, should I use that as a way of stopping smoking? because it enables me to say, well, I wouldn't. I would do the, these things as a preference, 100%. Cool. So, Palavi, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we haven't been too threatening. I know that you said at the beginning before we recorded that this is a new experience. I hope it's been okay.
2: I had a great time. It's definitely the first podcast I've ever been on and you guys were so gentle and supportive and thank
0: you for having me. Thank you for coming and for inspiring me and I just look forward to hearing more about the work that you're doing and hopefully working with you in the next few years. So thank you and thanks, Beck for a, a fun chat.